Welcome, guys. Why don't you come on in, find a seat. Uh, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, my name is Tim, uh, the worship minister here. And so who better to walk us through this morning a history of musical worship? Now, I want to warn y'all before we get into this, this is going to be a very different uh, uh, lecture than our typical ones this semester. Because so far this semester, these... Uh, We've just talked about like major events or we've picked a major character or a key figure in church history and that's what we've talked about. But today we're gonna be talking about the topic of musical worship. The topic of musical worship for all of 2,000 years, okay? In 50 minutes, by the way. 2,000 years and 50 minutes, beginning with the New Testament and working our way all the way up to today. And if you're thinking, there's definitely no way he's gonna be able to do that or on a very deep level, or to be able to cover all of this amount of content uh, and be able to cover all of these events in history, correct. You're absolutely correct. There is no way I'm going to be able to cover 2,000 years in 50 minutes. Because if you think about it, if you do the math, that means I have about two minutes per every 100 years, okay? So we don't have a lot of time. But that just means that today, for you, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, okay? We're going to be covering a lot of content, but it won't be anywhere close to exhaustive, okay? But I can give you this. You will walk away from this lecture if you pay attention <laughs> with three things, okay? With three things. First, a basic understanding of the various ways the church has worshiped for the past 2,000 years and how we got from the New Testament to today. Then I want us to learn from the errors and mistakes of our predecessors so that we might avoid the same errors and mistakes of our predecessors. Uh, we can avoid those errors and mistakes today. And then I want us to have a better idea of why we sing the way we sing here at Parkway. Okay? And so you'll notice uh, as I talk about all these things the church has done well or maybe some, some missteps or ways that the church has gotten off track, I'll mention things that we've picked up from these various eras uh, in history that have influenced the way we do things here at Parkway. And so hopefully by the end of it, you'll understand a little bit more about why we're doing the things we're doing as we're singing on Sunday mornings and you'll be able to understand why we don't have like lasers and uh, you know, fog machines and things like that, okay? So with that in mind, let's pray and then let's get to it. Father, we thank you uh, for who you are, for your grace. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with us uh, now. I pray that you would, uh, uh, you know, even this, this uh, class, you protect it from the typical uh, technical delays and technical mishaps that seem to, uh, to plague uh, our system. Um, and Lord, as we just cover all of this, uh, this church history, I pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, uh, you would teach us, uh, that we would rejoice, uh, that your church has never been overcome, uh, nor never will be, uh, by the gates of Hades, and that we would, uh, we would learn from uh, the people who have uh, laid a foundation before us. We thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So notice in your notes, uh, and yeah, we're just getting started. No time for funny stories like, oh, when I was a kid, I fell off my bike, and now I learned something about Jesus. Nope. No time. Here's the list of all of uh, these little eras that I've sort of put together. I've kind of made up these names um, because these are how I'm gonna try to organize the musical uh, history of the church because many church uh, history textbooks, they don't really consider this. This isn't really high, you know, they're talking about the Reformation, they're talking about popes and controversies there and church music kind of doesn't really get a lot of coverage, which is why we're talking about it. So you'll see that it uh, begins with Judeo-Christian, then catechistic, I uh, mean, you know, the equipping of new believers. Imperial, which is, uh, and then monastic, which is a, uh, a counter movement to the imperial worship. Then comes Roman Catholic, followed by Reformation. Then revivalistic hymnody, contemporary Christian, and then neo-revivalism, and then the response to that, neo-catechistic. Okay, so we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's begin. When we talk about worship in the New, in the New Testament, this Judeo-Christian worship, we have to remember that all of the New Testament authors are Jewish, right? The disciples, the apostles, those dudes are all very Jewish, going to the temple, 
reciting the Shema, praying certain prayers at certain times of day, they're Jews, okay? And so they're, they're just Jews who have accepted the Messiah rather than rejected the Messiah. That's why they're Christians. That's what makes them Christians. And so when we're thinking about the musical worship of the early church, especially what's going on in the New Testament, you have to recognize that church music has as its foundation the worship music and style of Israel. In other words, at the dawn of Christianity, Christians are using the same forms of worship but with a new perspective, with a different end in light of the coming of Christ. And so if you flip through the Old Testament, you'll see that music played a significant role in the life of Israel and was an integral part of their worship. For example, the Old Testament mentions at least 11 different musical instruments used by the people of Israel in worship. Okay, which shows that they're pretty advanced. You got a little picture of uh, some Israelites in Assyrian captivity and they're carrying lyres. That's this old ancient uh, you know, imprint on the side of a, uh, of a stone tablet. And so we, we see, for example, this, uh, they have all of these, you know, they have harps, they have lyres, they have drums and cymbals and bells, even playing cypress wood. We see that uh, in, in the Old Testament, like I guess wood blocks or something. But not to mention the amount of singing the people of Israel are doing throughout generations in and out of captivity, in the middle of war sometimes, as recorded throughout the Old Testament. So for example, what does Moses, what did Moses and the Israelites do after they cross the Red Sea? What's the first thing they do? And they see their enemies vanquished behind them, covered in the Red Sea, what do they do? They sing, they like break out in song, which is kind of you know strange to me. It says, then Moses and the people, this is from Exodus 15:1. then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And though we obviously don't have recordings of these songs uh, or know exactly what they sounded like, we can draw some conclusions regarding the worship of Israel all the way up to the New Testament. And so first, we do know that it relies a lot on call and response. And that passage I just read in Exodus 15, that's a great example. How is it that all of these people can cross the Red Sea and then simultaneously be singing the same song? It says that they all sang together. Had they already written the song and like memorized it just in case it just so happened that the chariots were thrown under the Red Sea? Like were they prepared? No. They start singing it through this call and response method. And by the way, this is gonna be a little bit participatory this morning, okay? So here's what they would do. Just follow after me. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. Pretty easy. That's how they do it. So that's how a lot of Old Testament uh, songs and the Psalms, that's, that's what, they rely a lot on that sort of call and response and congregational participation. And thank you all for participating. And so the music of, of Israel, it's not like a soloist. It's not like the, you know, the, the uh, Old Baptist Church offertory, you know, where Cindy gets to sing her special music over the track. <clears throat> it's actually uh, congregational, and there's a lot of congregational participation. The other uh, thing you have to know about uh, Israel's music, there's a lot of repetition. You know, for hundreds of years, what is their, what are, all of their songs are the Psalms. This one, this book full of psalms and then other songs dispersed throughout the Old Testament because the overwhelming majority of people couldn't read. That's not just in Israel's history, in all of history. And so important doctrines or important moments in Israel's history that highlighted the grace of God to the people of Israel, you don't hand folks a book so that they can learn about these important events in their history. Instead, you would sing a song. So they would learn and memorize. They would be able to meditate on this song after hearing it as they sing it again and again and again at certain holidays, certain festivals, whatever it may be. And it's not just for the congregation as a whole, but also for the personal life of the individual believer. And the point becomes to fill your mind with truth so that if you're in exile or captivity or in the market or you're in days of plenty or whatever, whatever your experience, you could remember and meditate on God's word. You could, you could remember that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, even when you're in Assyrian captivity, like the picture uh, that I have there in your notes. And I have no doubt this is what Paul and Silas are doing as they sit in prison in Acts 16. Acts 16, 25 through 26, about midnight, Paul and Silas, what are they doing in prison? Praying and singing hymns to God. 
And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And so they'd taken these songs from their gatherings at the temple, these songs that they grew up listening to, they'd been repeated over and over and over again, that they had participated in singing, and they'd heard them so often that in a time of difficulty, in a time of stress, these songs which had made their home in Paul and Silas's hearts, that's what flows out in prayer and worship to God. So this is, if you ever wondered why we keep a pretty limited songbook here at Parkway, why we have a limited number of songs that we sing, meaning we repeat songs pretty often here at Parkway. So that the, the point is that you would actually know these songs and they would actually be able to make a home in your heart and help you to recall the character and grace of God in your everyday life. The songs we sing here, we don't want them to just you know, stay in this room. We don't want y'all to just only sing those songs here. We would like for them to go with you, but they can only go with you if you've had ample opportunity to learn them. And so we repeat them often. We repeat songs often, just like was done for hundreds of years in Israel and then in the early church. <clears throat> and by the way, if you wanna know more about why we limit the number of songs we sing, we have a, a blog by that title uh, on our website that you can check out. If you can't find it, just email me. All of this to say, at the dawn of Christianity, if you want to say it that way, the music of believers is primarily Jewish because believers are primarily Jewish. And they're taking these songs and worship style of Israel and just applying it to Jesus, to Christ. But that can only go so far. There's a little bit of a a limitation there uh, because having a songbook that's explicitly Jewish in language and in style, it lends itself to some problems, namely the inability to adapt and translate the Hebrew songs into the style and language of Gentiles. So Gentile converts, they don't know these songs. <clears throat> they haven't grown up uh, listening to them sung in the temple. So they, they're not aware. They, they can't really join in and join along with their, their brothers and sisters. Also, the, these were people with a different language, different instruments, different styles of music completely. So it's really hard for them to jump on board when, you know, Paul and Silas are in prison singing. They're they're all listening and they're kind of like, well, that was interesting music, but they can't really join in. So there's a bit of a limitation there. But thankfully, that problem didn't last long as much of the church was dispersed throughout the Roman Empire after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that leads us to our next era, which is the catechistic era that goes from 70 AD to 313 AD. By the way, these dates, of course, it's not like in 70 AD, everybody stopped worshiping this way. Everything's a Venn diagram, okay? Everything kind of blurs into the next era. So these dates are organized based off of significant things that that altered music, uh, the, the history of musical worship in the church. So that's why I've organized it this way. So in 70 AD, Rome crushed the city of Jerusalem in response to the Jews trying to have basically their own version of a revolutionary war, okay? That was, their, that was what they did. They, they were frustrated with high taxes, so they went and, you know, threw some matzah into the harbor or something. <clears throat> they start, uh, you know, rebelling and attacking uh, Roman soldiers and it uh, did not go well for them, okay? It did not go well for them. You know, maybe they should have revolted against the British. They're a little bit more pushovers. But the Romans... They weren't the only people that the Jews were having problems with. The the Jews also hated uh, Christians as well. And so they they just wanted everybody out of Jerusalem. They just wanted Jerusalem for themselves. Everybody just leave us alone, give us our shalom. And so as a result of the persecution of Christians by Jews and then the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, Christians living in Jerusalem were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, away from places where Judaism was dominant to pagan nations, and they carried with them their Christian faith. And as they taught their new neighbors about their faith, which they could easily do speaking Koine Greek, this this common language, this lingua franca, but like I said, they ran into a little bit of a hiccup when it came to passing along their worship songs. Charles Etherington, who's this great uh, church music historian, he writes, since the monodic music of the liturgy was so closely wedded to words and inflections, music suited to the language of Jewish worship would seldom be suitable for translations. More or fewer syllables would be required for expression in the Greek tongue. Points of stress would differ, as would the positions and nature of the inflections. If the liturgy was to be sung in Greek, then it must be to a style of music that would accommodate the language. Okay, so what they end up doing is they begin singing and composing new songs. He's saying it's hard to sing Jewish songs in Greek. And so they just had to write new ones. 
We don't know where the melodies came from for these songs, possibly just stolen from common folk songs around them. We don't know, we have no idea. But we do know is that these songs were specifically aimed at teaching and equipping Gentile converts with the essentials of the Christian faith. They were highly theological and doctrinal songs. And that's why I call this the catechistic age. It's all about catechizing these new converts and preserving their belief in sound doctrine for the future. Because, I don't know if you know, it's a lot of work converting from paganism to Christianity. Okay, it's a, lot, it's a lot of shifts in your mind, going from polytheism, having little shrines in your house that you pray to every morning, to this monotheistic God who condemns having little shrines in your house that you pray to every morning. And so these converts had a lot of cultural and religious baggage that it took a long time to work through. And if you need any further evidence, pay attention as we walk through 1 Corinthians. They're still going to temple prostitutes, they're doing all these crazy things, and he's like, come on, you pagans, start acting like Christians. And that's what they were struggling with here in this catechistic age, this, this this long process of catechizing new believers. <clears throat> and so these new songs are circulated among and within churches. Uh, some barring words even from Paul's letters. Some, some of our early, early hymns are actually just, they took it from Paul's letter and they just started singing what Paul was saying. And these songs become these helpful teaching devices to instruct believers in the faith and also to correct believers and keep them from going back to their old ways of living. And one major proponent and possibly the writer of uh, many songs was Clement of Alexandria. Okay, there's a picture of him in your notes. Uh, who is the leader of the catechetical school in Alexandria, uh, which was basically a school for new converts uh, in 190 AD. And in one of Clement's major works, which is titled uh, The Tutor, okay, The Tutor, Clement makes the argument that Christ is the tutor of Christians. He teaches Christians how to walk in holiness. He's our instructor in holiness so that we might grow up and walk as Jesus walks. And in this work, he also makes this big point of talking about how Christians are the, are the children of Christ who are growing up to be like their spiritual parent, okay? So he, he talks all about this and then he ends his book with scripture references, sort of proving his point, kind of like a bibliography, that's, that's great, that's what most people do in that age, but then he does something strange. He ends the book with a hymn. The very last page is this, this hymn, and we don't know who wrote it, maybe he did, maybe Clement wrote it, or maybe he was around in the time, and he just felt like it supported his argument really, really well, but this is, ends up being the oldest Christian hymn that we can confi- with confidence say was indeed a hymn, was indeed sung, uh, and sung by Christians during this time. There's a lot of older hymns that were like, was this just a poem, we don't really know, but this we know for sure was sung by Christians because in his letter he encourages, encourages people to sing it. And this is, uh, it was translated in 1846 into English with the title Shepherd of Tender Youth. You, you see, guide of little children is what he's saying. And it goes like this. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and truth through winding ways. Christ, our triumphant King, we come your name to sing. Here we, our children, bring to shout your praise. You are our holy Lord, the all-subduing word, healer of strife. You did yourself abase, that from sin's deep disgrace you might now save our race and give us life. You are the great high priest, and you have prepared the feast of heavenly love. While in our mortal pain, none calls on you in vain. Help you do not disdain, help from above. Forever be our guide, that could also be translated tutor, our instructor, our shepherd and our pride, our staff and song, Jesus, O Christ of God, by your enduring rod, not a great rhyme, rhyme. (laughs) lead us where you have trod, (laughs) make our faith strong. So now until we die, sound we your praises high and joyful sing. Infants in the glad throng who to your church belong, unite to swell the song to Christ our King. So notice what he's doing. He writes this long treatise on a particular theological topic and then He includes this hymn which explicitly affirms the teaching that he has just given in his book. And this is an excellent picture of what I mean by this catechistic age where you have a pastor teaching. Pastors would teach, they would read from the Bible, they would read scripture, they'd provide commentary on them and then the people would sing and memorize these songs which would drive that teaching onward in their minds as they sang their songs throughout the week. And then notice again, this relationship that we have to church history. Notice that's something we, we try to do here at Parkway. 
if you haven't noticed. The songs we sing are meant to help you meditate on these really deep, sometimes they're profound, complex doctrinal ideas and theological topics that we discuss in theological equipping and in our sermons. Or even as you read your Bible and study uh, you know, theology in community, or even personally, as you encounter these various theological topics, our hope is to sing songs that can push your theology along with a nice tomb that you can hum, hum while you wash the dishes, okay? And so the catechistic era of musical worship was an excellent one for the discipleship of believers, especially new converts and the faith. But there was a problem, there always is, because we always mess up good things, okay? The Jewish hymns of previous generations, those were canonized, right? You can't go around writing your own hymns because you can only sing God's word. But not so in this new age. With such a diverse church spread all across the Roman Empire and beyond, there's no real control over what people might end up believing about Jesus. And even worse, what terrible theology they might marry to catchy tunes to help spread their false beliefs at a rapid pace. And so this is exactly how Arianism spread so quickly. Arius was a talented musician and songwriter, and he wrote hymns that he would pass out to his believers, and that's what they were singing. And so he went around writing, about, writing his own catechistic hymns, all about how Jesus is created, you know? And they were like at the very top of the Christian billboard top 100. Everybody loved them. They're like, these jams are my jam. Jesus definitely created, love it. You know, that's kind of how Arianism spread. And so, yeah, boo, indeed. <clears throat> and so through the style, though the style of uh, worship music is really helpful in teaching sound doctrine, it's also extremely helpful in teaching false doctrine. Okay, so there's a lot more to say, but we have to move on. Uh, I would like to include here like a comment about how really popular songs and worship music and really catchy songs, they have a lot of terrible theology in them. But, well, that's the comment. There you go. <laughs> Buyer beware. So uh, that leads us to the imperial and monastic period of 313 to 590 A.D., who knows what happens in 312 AD? Not 313, 312 AD. We talked about it earlier this semester. Here's what I heard. This was great. I'll give you the answer. Uh, Constantine is converted at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, this huge, or at least he says so. He believes he was converted. Uh, Constantine, he experienced in the heat of battle on this, uh, on this bridge at the Milvian Bridge. Um, he experiences what he would call conversion to Christianity, which, uh, so be, because he becomes a Christian, he issues this Edict of Milan in 313, okay? Which basically says, and that's why 313 is important for us. It basically says, stop persecuting Christians. Hear ye, hear ye, everyone in the Roman Empire, stop being mean to Christians. If you took their sacred texts or their books, give those back to, and I'm the emperor. That's what he said. Okay, so that's Edict of Milan of 313. My paraphrase slightly. Uh, and that marks the end of Christian persecution in the Roman Empire, which is really great. Hooray, no more persecution, but some weird stuff starts happening. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says uh, in his uh, history textbook on church history, after Constantine's conversion, Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. Incense, which was used as a sign of respect for the emperor, began appearing in Christian churches. Officiating ministers, who until then had worn everyday clothes, like this guy, began dressing in more luxurious garments, dressing their best for Jesus on Sunday morning if you want to say it that way. Likewise, a number of gestures indicating respect, which were normally made before the emperor, now became part of Christian worship. The custom was also introduced to beginning services with a processional. And I grew up in the Methodist church, and we would have these, like on Easter, these people would like walk down the aisle with flags. Anybody else experience that? Yeah, oh, that's was, was weird. Well, this is where it came from, okay? Now you know. Uh, I never knew, and I was like, oh, that finally makes sense, but it still doesn't. Okay. <clears throat> Eventually, the congregation came to have a less active role in worship, okay? Pay attention to that, a less active role in worship. People were flocking into the church in such numbers that there was little time to prepare them for baptism and even less to guide them in the Christian life. And so all of a sudden, elements of pagan worship are introduced into Christian liturgy. 
The church is soon polluted with false religion and paganism and this like weird religious syncretism as more and more people were baptized without discretion or much work of equipping the new converts with the essentials of the faith. And so that's not good, by the way, all that I just said. But in response to this, there's this counter movement which became known as monasticism. Okay, the monastics who we've already discussed, they rejected the lavishness and the corruption of this Roman church and they ran to the hills, ran to the desert to seclude themselves to pursue a life of holiness in the desert. Think of guys like Anthony or or Martin, these hermits in the desert. And they swing the pendulum just a little too far, I'd say. Uh, And these monastic communities, they really just become places where everyone's constantly outdoing one another in holiness, or at least trying to. Because what else are you going to do? I mean, you're just in the middle of the desert with nothing to do. So I don't think they played like through the football around. And so these guys take commands like pray without ceasing. They take that quite literally and try to pray all day. And that's really hard. Uh, It's hard to do all day. What's easier to do all day? Sing. Instead of just trying to pray, oh, Lord, help me to not step on that bug. Instead, you just sing about God's mercy and how great God is. And so that develops this, uh, this sort of chanting, you know, in Latin, of course, but this sort of uh, plain song chant that, becomes, uh, that grows in popularity. And I'm skipping over a lot here, but these chants, as they're called, will grow to dominate the next 1,000 years of music in the Roman Catholic Church. So basically, at the end of this era, the corrupt, power-hungry imperial church and the overzealous, sort of self-centered, chanting monastic church, they have a baby, and its name is the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what they produce, okay? And as the monastic communities, they begin providing the bulk of the clergy to pastor these these churches all across the Roman Empire, the music that each priest takes with him to his new little local church is the same music he's been singing at the monastery, which means that the music of the church becomes primarily these weird monk chants, as I like to call them, or what is known as Gregorian chant, which are memorized by the clergy and sung on behalf of the congregation. The congregation could not have had very much of any sort of meaningful participation And so as many of these songs are written, I'm sure they're beautiful at the time. You know, their theology at times was very rich, and I have no doubts that congregants were still able to worship in spite of being uh, forbidden, basically, from participating in worship. You know, the gates of Hades haven't, haven't overcome our church. But I would say that no music that deprives a congregation from the ability to obey the command to sing to the Lord is ever worth the cost. And that leads us to the Roman Catholic, sorry about that, the Roman Catholic age from 590 AD all the way up to the Reformation in 1517 AD. And that 590 is not the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, don't be confused by that, but the beginning of Gregory the Great's papacy, okay, Uh, under which Gregorian chant seems to have really taken off in the church. Now this is the longest period of time that we're going to cover today. If you'll notice, it's about a thousand years, but I'm actually going to spend the least amount of time on it. And here's why. This was a lecture about music and innovations in music. Then we would spend probably the bulk of our time here. They have semesters in college that are dedicated just to the music of the Roman Catholic Church because there's a lot you could talk about. Uh, There's so many innovations. The Roman Catholic Church innovates music in in ways no one could have ever imagined. So you can Google it or whatever, have a blast. And they go from, you know, Gregorian chanting, uh, which I have the, the funny, the Monty Python guys. If you ever wondered, that's what those are supposed to do. The guys walking around saying, domine, requiem. That's a, and they're hitting themselves. That's a Gregorian chant that's, that's said at a funeral. It's a funeral rite, it's a requiem. It's still in use by the Catholic Church today. And so they're making fun of these Gregorian chants. They go from that to the Italian Renaissance. Okay, so you just imagine there is a lot of change in the music and in musical innovation that happens in these thousand years, and that's really impressive. But we're not primarily talking about musical development, but rather about musical worship. And if that's the case, there are very, very few developments in this era. Very few. This is basically all you need to know. The music of the church is sung in Latin, so the congregation cannot sing it or understand it. Even with all of these musical innovations and new scales and new harmonies, that actually just becomes too complex for the congregation. Even if they could understand or sing Latin, 
now the, the harmony and all of the, the, what it takes for the choirs to have this, this service and this mass service and these songs, the congregation is left out. They're left in the dust. The music is characterized by style over substance. Style over substance. The focus gradually becomes less and less on the content of the music and more on the art of music making. And then finally, the point of singing was not the edification of the believer. Remember, we're, we're dealing with Roman Catholicism here, especially medieval Roman Catholicism. So the focus is not the edification of the believer, but rather giving that believer an opportunity to build up merit, to build up their merit. And by simply being at the mass, whether they're singing or not, they're still getting a little bit of that credit, that merit credit to their account. And so singing during this Roman Catholic era was not about edification. Singing was about justification you want to put it that way. So I'll say here that this is one of the pitfalls of church history that we attempt to avoid here at Parkway because we want y'all to sing. That's really important. We want you guys to be singing and participating in worship. We want the congregation, our members, to actually be able to participate in the singing of the church. Therefore, we, you'll notice, sing songs with really simple melodies that are really simple and easy to learn and to follow along with. And not only that, but we sing in a key that everyone can sing in. How many of you have ever been to a church service where you, you physically could not sing with the songs? Me, for sure. What is the point of church music if the church can't participate? And so there's a lot more I could say, a lot of fun facts I could give, you know, so if you're looking for Q&A questions, say, what's the fun fact about the Roman Catholic Church? I'll give you one. But <laughs> that brings us to the Reformation, okay? Woo, Protestants, Protestants, okay. Uh, <clears throat> In 1517, Martin Luther presents the Roman Catholic Church with his 95 Thesis, uh, this open protest criticizing the church for the rampant corruption which had manifested most obviously in the selling of indulgences. So we all know that. And many begin separating themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. And the separation extends also to the music of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, they make a clean break from the music of the Roman Catholic Church. And here's what's happened, happening in music in the Reformation. First, the songs were translated from Latin to the common vernacular, okay? To the lingua franca, to the language of the people uh, around them. Uh, John Calvin writes of this importance. He says, it is also plain that the public prayers and songs are not to be couched in Greek among the Latins, nor in Latin among the French or English, as hitherto has been everywhere practiced. By the way, hitherto is a great term that we should bring back. It just means what's been happening so far. As, and it makes you want to say like, as hitherto has been everywhere practiced. You know, it makes you want to talk like that. Um, prayers and songs should be said in the vulgar tongue, he says, or the common tongue, so that all present may understand them, since they ought to be used for the edification of the whole church, which cannot be in the least degree benefited by a sound not understood. Additionally, chanting was eventually discontinued in favor, at least in the Protestant church, in favor of metrical hymns, metrical hymns. So unlike a Gregorian chant, metrical hymns were rhythmic, very easy to sing, and were similar in many ways to the common songs of the day. And on top of that, metrical songs were very easy to translate from one language to the next, not only from Latin to, to English or French or German, but from German to French or French to English or whatever you wanted to do. And you could easily give a melody to scripture passages with these metrical tombs. And so we're gonna learn a little bit, don't let that big box kind of intimidate you. We're gonna learn a little bit about metrical hymns uh, and how they work. And here's, here's why they're called metrical. They count each syllable of the tune and give and apply a word to every single note. Okay, so that, that sounded really confusing even as I said it. Uh, metrical hymns count each syllable sung on each line of a song and that determines the meter, okay? And so I've got this box in your notes. It's got numbers in German and English. Don't let that scare you. So number eight at the top of this first column here. That tells you how many syllables will be in the first line of Martin Luther's Ein Festeburg, which is a mighty fortress, okay, in the original German language. So watch, I'll count them. Ein Festeburg ist unser, oh wait. Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott, eight. There's eight syllables. And then you do it in English. A mighty fortress is our God. It's the same, right? Don't worry about that fourth column. We'll get there in a second. But then you just go to the next verse, you know, a bulwark never failing. There's only seven there. And that's how you write your entire verse. 
with these meters, with these specific counts of syllables. And then when you go, ah, now I want to write another verse, what do you do? Well, you just start the song over again with this easy tune that's easy to apply lyrics to. And so now that we have this sort of understanding, I guess, of this certain meter, say we wanted to use this tune to write a hymn based on Psalm 136, which is literally what I did here in the fourth column, and it took me like 90 seconds because it's not difficult at all. Okay, oh, 90 seconds. I did that, 90 seconds. That's not what I'm saying. But y'all have never heard this song before, right? This song, I, I wrote it for this class. I know you've never heard it before. Listen to how easily we're all gonna be able to sing it together. Again, we're gonna sing together. A Mighty Fortress is the tune, and we're gonna sing this psalm, which is a paraphrase of Psalm 136. Are you ready? Give thanks to God, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to him, the God of gods. Great wonders come forth from him. Tis he who made the skies and laid the waters wide, the sun, the stars so bright, his word to give us light. Da, da, ba. Like him, there is no other. Very nice, very nicely done. So you see how simple that is. I mean, that's very easy to pick up on. And so these metrical hymns, they spread like wildfire throughout and during the Reformation and the post-Reformation era. And obviously, many of them are still being sung today. You know, we sing a lot of metrical hymns here because their simple tunes were easily memorized. And you could easily swap out one lyric for another, uh, which meant congregations were actually developing their own hymn books. You go to any church and they would have, oh, here's the guy that writes our music. And the pastor would say, hey, today we're you know, gonna be preaching in Psalm 1. Do you think you could write a, a metrical hymn off of Psalm 1? Oh, sure, that won't take me long. Well, let's look at my metrical hymn index. This psalm begins with eight syllables in the first line of the psalm. And so I'll use a mighty fortress. That tune will work just fine. And so hymns are being written like crazy all over the place. And so that's what the Reformation truly brings us, these, these metrical hymns, which are, are not too shabby. I like metrical hymns. They're pretty great. And they sort of pour gasoline on the fire of the Reformation, allowing Protestant congregations the ability to easily write their own hymns straight from the scriptures. So that's the upside of the Reformation era. Now here's really the main downside. Uh, there was a ton of disagreement among Protestant denominations over how music should be sung in the context of the gathering. So like Luther, who was actually a musician himself, a very talented musician, he loved all the, let's bring all the instruments, let's have a big old pipe organ, you know, that song, A Mighty Fortress, when you hear it on a pipe organ, it's crazy. And it sounds like some like war hymn or something like that. So he loved all, the, all that stuff. Calvin looked at Luther and said, you're pretty Catholic with all those instruments. We gotta get rid of all the instruments. No more instruments, that would be much better. So it's just the congregation lifting their voices. They argued about, can you paraphrase the psalm or do you have to use the exact text in the German or the, or the language of the day? And so there's a ton of division. There's a ton of disagreements. And so unfortunately, that sort of marks the music of the Reformation era. It's just marked by division. And again, there's a lot I could talk about here, but I have to move on. Maybe we'll talk about the instrument, no instrument debate at a later date. Obviously, you know where we stand. You know, we've got instruments. Even sometimes I play an electric guitar. Oh, you know, it's crazy. So... We'll talk about it some other time. It's an adiaphora issue, really. So the debate solved. So there you go. You're welcome, church history and John Calvin. Uh, <clears throat> but obviously, the great thing that happens during this Reformation is that congregations are singing again. That even draws people out of the Roman Catholic Church. They're like, I want to go sing over there. That sounds fun. They're like having fun in there with that cool Mighty Fortress song. And they're singing scripture in their own language or paraphrases of scripture taken directly from the Psalms or other biblical passages. And then that brings us to revivalistic hymnody in the 1730s to the 1950s. So here we are 1,700 years in, and we're just now to the era that most people think of when they talk about old hymns, Right? Took us 1,700 years to get to that point. I remember there was some Christian band in the early 2000s. They put out an, an album called Hymns Ancient and Modern. And what was great about that album is none of the hymns were ancient, and the oldest hymns were from this era, you know, the 1700s. So ancient 1700s. 
So quick disclaimer, this is an era that I could spend an entire semester on, no joke. There is a ton going on, a ton of hymns being written. I could do a, a story about each hymn writer's life and it would actually, I think, be pretty interesting. Uh, but I feel like no, no matter what, I'm leaving out and breaking this down so brief, I'm leaving out a ton of important history. Uh, so in order to save time, I just kind of listed these contributing factors, some of the major ones that all converge to inspire this era of church music. And those would be the Baroque period, okay? This uh, sort of period of art and music uh, in, in Europe, uh, where the primary function of the arts became to inspire or elicit emotion and awe. That's basically how you could describe the Baroque period in Europe. It's arts for the sake of eliciting awe and emotion. So if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church and you've seen a, uh, a crucifix with like Jesus on it that looks real gnarly and he like looks awful and it just makes you like, it's like painful to look at. Have anybody ever seen that? That is a very Baroque era depiction of the crucifix. It's supposed to make you sick to your stomach to go, oh no, and they're trying to say like, yes, feel it, feel the crucifixion. That's their, that's their point. Or think about Handel's Messiah. Oh, hallelujah. It's this huge, like raucous, just crazy song that's celebrating the coming of Christ and it's supposed to evoke this emotion of celebration out of you. It's this Baroque era uh, opera, basically. And so these are just a couple examples uh, from the Baroque period. So this desire to elicit emotion from an audience makes its way into the minds of hymn writers who had sort of grown tired of their Reformation era metrical hymns that, yes, helped people sing the scriptures, but it didn't make them feel the scriptures. That's what they start thinking in their minds. And so then that leads to this desire for more poetic metrical hymns. Hymn writers want you to experience the feelings of the characters of the passages of scripture that you're singing. That's what they want. So they take their cues from Baroque era poetry, especially the English poets, and they begin to inject passion and drama and emotion into these old metrical hymns. And then finally, the first great awakening, it just so happens that these hymns are being written as George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards are leading this revival across the 13 American colonies where they're trying to move Christians. I don't, you know, I don't want to spoil the first great awakening for you. We'll talk about it later in the semester. But the whole point is to, to move Christians beyond thinking of their faith as simply an intellectual exercise and get them to feel for God, to, to ignite their heart aflame for, for God. That is the point of this great awakening, to kind of bring about revival and so that people, they, they, they feel sorrow over their sin so that they would sin, go and sin no more. And so these three powers combine to launch this new era of hymn writing, wherein the purpose of hymns is to bring the theology you're studying from a dry intellectual exercise to a radical transformation of the heart, okay? To shake your heart from its slumber, to awaken to the riches of God's grace to you. That's the point of the hymns being written in this era at, at its best, Okay, that's, that's, that's this era at its best, but at its worst, it's an era where hymns are used as these artificial means of mimicking the effects of true revival. That's really what's going on. Certainly, that's what we'll see in the second and third Great Awakenings. Again, I won't spoil it. We'll talk about it later uh, next semester. But these hymns become tools in the hands of tent revivalists uh, used to convince people to make a profession of faith. They're so emotion driven and they're so passionate that they can convince people to make a profession of faith. So that's why I called this era uh, revivalistic hymnody. Uh, and don't get me wrong, we got a lot of great hymns out of this time period. It is well, nothing but the blood, how great thou art, oh, four thousand tongues to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, God moves in a mysterious way, amazing grace. To name a few, we get a ton of great hymns out of this era, but in the end, rather than leading to large-scale reform of the behavior of Christians in America, many of these songs just taught people how to feel really strongly about God until after the last chord was played. And then they just go home and keep sinning. <clears throat> so we have to recognize that emotion is the product of your theology. Emotion is a product of your theology. It's not going to create theology for you. It's a product. Worship included is a product of your theology. And what people got with many of these hymns was emotion and worship, but they didn't have the theology to fuel anything beyond their momentary feelings. And so this era was marked by an overemphasis on the products of good theology, things like worship, you know, feelings towards God, missions, the missions movement even, all great things. However, there was a general disregard for what actually fuels these 
things, these good things, which is theology. And so on one hand, I really appreciate this era for the use of creativity, pairing you know, beautiful lyrics with simple tunes. That's great, but what's not so great is how little effort was spent discipling congregants in sound doctrine as a means of fueling worship. And so instead, many hymns were just used to jumpstart a revival without first providing a sturdy foundation, just a flash in a pan. So these songs, though, become the backbone of the American church all the way into the 1960s, right? These songs, if, you know, if you're old enough to remember the 1960s, like Jeff Ashley probably does, you, you would remember that these are the songs that are being sung primarily in a lot of churches. And so that brings us to this contemporary Christian movement, which began in the 1960s. I'm really gonna have to rush through this one, so stick with me. Because these revivalistic hymn era songs that were meant to stir the affection and meant to lead to widespread revival, because they have no fuel, no theological, no doctrine that's pushing them forward. They just turn into these rote hymns that folks sing year in and year out, year again and again and again, with no real change to their life. And as they continue to be sung with the original lyrics, they become more and more disconnected from the next generation of worshipers. And they're especially disconnected from all you baby boomers out there. All you dudes with your long hair driving your Chevy Novas and your women with your feminine mystique and your round sunglasses, y'all hate these songs, okay? Y'all say, those, my parents, they don't understand me. Those songs don't have, they're not authentic. There's no feeling in them. It's just, it's not real, you know? You're such squares, mom and dad. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to live there. I'm very, I'm very young. But just notice that what they're saying in the 60s for why they need new songs is the same thing they said in the 1730s. They wrote the songs that they now hate so much, right? Not enough emotion, just wrote repetition, just dry and boring. So history repeats itself. Very quickly, uh, 20-somethings, they, they leave their parents' churches and they go start their own churches, start playing the music that they like. And you get guys like Larry Norman, who look at that feller. Now that's the really American man right there. <laughs> that's hilarious to me. Uh, that anybody would say, they would pick up that album at the store and go, this is what I want, I want this. Whatever this guy's got, I'm gonna buy it. <clears throat> you get guys like Larry Norman, he's writing these rock and roll songs about Jesus saying, you know, why should the devil have all the good music, right? You gotta remember that until the 1960s, people actually thought literally that the electric guitar was the devil's instrument, okay? Therefore should be forbidden from churches. And so legalism is a real thing. And these songs, they end up, they sound like popular stuff being written by Paul Simon and Bob Dylan. And eventually this creates this contemporary worship music movement that grows into the billion dollar contemporary music industry that we know, contemporary Christian music industry that we know today. So quickly, here's what's great. They pushed back against legalism. I love that all day long. Legalism is more dangerous than licentiousness. You should always push back against legalism. I love that they did that. Here's what's also great. Playing songs that are in the common musical vernacular of the day, I think it's extremely valuable, all right? Instead of uh, just playing songs that were communicable only to the culture 300 years ago. So highly value that. That's all great. Yay, you did it, baby boomers. But here's the bad news. This Contemporary Christian music effectively divides Christians across the U.S. into two camps, traditional or contemporary. Who are you? Christ- are you contemporary or are you traditional? And church begin, churches begin offering two services, basically having two churches meeting in their building, trying to uh, just make sure everybody's happy and appease the masses. And it cuts these congregations in half, typically on a generational divide. That's not great, by the way. And additionally, the contemporary uh, Christian music is music movement in the industry. Uh, it's being written by folks in Nashville, not really by pastors or theologians or anybody like that. And it's written as a business. It's written to sell records. And so you see church music starts to grow shallow. It starts to lack theological depth and precision. It becomes all about relating to me and my feelings. And you just get songs that are just using buzzwords to pander to the tastes of the day. And so when worship music is more about stirring emotion than long-term edification, and when the worship minister's job is primarily to give people whatever they want uh, and to put on a good show so no one stops giving money to the church so we can keep supporting missions or whatever, uh, where does that lead us? That leads us to neo-revivalism and then eventually neo-catechistic. So really quickly on these two and then we'll be done. 
Church music becomes simply about ensuring that you have an experience that makes you want to keep coming back for more. That's the new church business model, per se, as far as music is concerned. To see every Sunday as a miniature revival, and this also coincides with the growth and more charismatic influence in the church. And so we get churches like Bethel and Hillsong and writing these, these huge worship anthems. And like Bethel, for instance, whose, whose website, at least right now on the homepage, it says, we are a community of believers passionate about God's manifest presence. That's a product they're selling. They're saying, if you come here, what are you going to experience? God's manifest presence. What's that? We won't tell you, but we've got it. You're like, oh, I want it. We believe that God is good and, our, and gr- our great privilege is to know and experience him. It's all about this experience. Music is all about providing an experience and experiencing this, especially an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which apparently to places like Bethel means a band can make up a song spontaneously. That's all the Spirit can really do. That's it. He's like, I've outpoured. That's all I got. But this is the experiences that churches begin to chase, or better yet, they begin to offer. Whether it's convincing people that they have experienced the manifest presence of God with fog machines or lasers or cool light shows or whatever it might be, uh, that is what they are trying to, to sell. Uh, and all of this is done paired with these big anthems, dramatic lyrics to give attendees an experience and these emotions that they wouldn't be able to encounter anywhere else. Keep coming back for more. Keep coming back for more. Yet, as always, these little revivals can't go very far because they're extremely limited by theological deficiency. Your theology is the ceiling of your worship. Your theology is the ceiling of your revival, to put it that way. And so there's a counter movement which actually uh, rejects this style of worship, which was sort of kickstarted by a guy named Bob Coughlin, who argued in this book in 2008, he titled Worship Matters. Huh, that's a funny pun. Worship matters. It does. And the matters of worship. Uh, he wrote in his book, Worship Matters, that a good worship leader is one who combines God's, God's word with music. That's it. That was his definition. He combines God's word with music. And that's a good worship leader. And he lamented the overproduced state of worship music in the 2000s, the fog machines, the light shows. And a ton of people actually resonated with this book. And they were like, hey, I thought all this stuff was crazy too. My church made me buy it. So yeah, I just want to sing songs that glorify God and edify the people. And so this begins this, this counter movement, uh, the counter to the, uh, the revivalism, this wave of pastors and songwriters writing songs that help teach the congregation about who God is and teach congregations to worship God in melodies simple enough to carry with them throughout the week. And often the song uh, preferred by the neo-catechist is metrical. Metrical songs make this, this comeback where the, everybody, people are writing new metrical hymns. Uh, and so I'd say this is a large majority of the type of music that we actually sing here at Parkway. We sing basically anything that's simple enough for everybody to sing along to and beautiful enough uh, to appreciate and communicate the beauty of God and songs that glorify God and edify the believer, edify the members of our church. That's, that's what we're really trying to do. We want to glorify God as we sing and we want to edify, the, our, we want to be edified. We want to sing hymns and spiritual songs to one another, okay, to encourage one another in the spirit. And so this current moment that we're in is very similar to this catechistic age from long ago in regard to using songs to accompany doctrinal instruction. And sure, the same problems exist. People write really cool metrical hymns today that still have poor theology, you know? Or they have the look of, you know, oh, this church is, they care about doctrine and they talk about exegesis and their songs have Bible verses underneath them. Wow, they must be legit. No, not all the time. And so it's hard, you have to, it's amazing. We have to have the spirit and discernment. Oh, it's so hard, you know? And so that's sort of the age that we currently live in. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much all of our time because we need to go to Q&A. And I don't have any strong conclusion because I was amazed if I even got all the way to this end. So thank you all for sticking it out. I'm gonna pray for us and then I think Jared's gonna come up. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Um, we thank you that you are a good God and that you've given us worship. I pray, Lord, um, that we would uh, worship you uh, rightly, that we would be those who worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, Lord, we confess that we need you and we err all the time. Right now, Parkway is doing things that are not good. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what we're doing that's not good, that you would help us to be quick to repent uh, upon discovery. Uh, we, we need you. No church is perfect. No person is perfect. We confess our deep need for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.